The scripture for today is found in Ezekiel chapter 33. We'll be reading verses 7 through 20 and then verses 30 through 33. This can be found on page 1309-1309 of the Pew Bible. Ezekiel chapter 33, starting from verse 7. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel. So hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sin though you yourself will be saved. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your people, if someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. The righteous person who sins will not be allowed to live even though they were formerly righteous. If I tell a righteous person that they will surely live, but then they trust in their righteousness and do evil, none of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. They will die for the evil they have done. And if I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, but they then turn away from their sin and do what is just and right. If they give back what they took in pledge for a loan, return what they have stolen, follow the decrees that give life and do no evil, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the sins that person has committed will be remembered against them. They have done what is just and right. They will surely live. Yet your people say, the way of the Lord is not just, but it is their way that is not just. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and does evil, they will die for it. And if a wicked person turns away from their wickedness and does what is just and right, they will live by doing so. Yet you Israelites say, the way of the Lord is not just, but I will judge each of you according to your own ways. Moving forward to verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them... You are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. So word of the Lord written for his people. Okay, so I'm going to be honest with you, all right? That I am. I just, I'm just going to say something I normally wouldn't. Um, this is a five-sermon chapter, okay? I think that to exposit this chapter well, biblically speaking, 
it would take me five sermons, okay? So when you say, what is this incomparable mess the pastor's shouting at me? Um, just know that I don't think that you want me to preach five sermons on Isaiah, or um, on Ezekiel 33, and that's why, okay? Um, so you have heard or said many of these things. It's not my fault. I'm sorry I made you feel that way. You don't understand the situation I'm in. It wouldn't have done any good to do that hard thing. What do you really want from me anyway? No one would have listened to me if I would have spoken up. The results that happened were inevitable. Nothing I could have done could have prevented it. Life is unfair. We all know this, right? I didn't have a choice. I'm too old, tired, unlucky, or busy to involve myself in that, right? Even if I would have tried, somebody would have held me back. I would have essentially been a victim. I was just following orders, doing what I did rather than standing up against it. It was just too hard to do. What's the use? It won't make any difference. I can't risk it. Everybody hates me. They're not going to listen. And no one else was willing to help. Obviously, this would go on. You see what I'm getting at here? Human beings have this incredible ability to evade responsibility. We are so good at it. And um, the horror of the truth of the beauty of God's creation is that you are made in the image of God. You possess reason able to understand what's right and wrong. You possess the capacity for provident emotion. That is, you can guide yourself in the world. You have the ability to put together time frames so as to know what's coming and what's been and, and inhabiting diachronic time so that you can have a destiny and understand what your destiny is and understand where you're from. You can place yourself in the meaning of time, space, and creation. And you can be connected to and know God himself and understand and choose to obey or disobey, believe in or disbelieve in God's revealed nature in himself, in the written scriptures, in the man Jesus Christ, in his creation, and in the many ways in which he speaks and shows himself. And one of the horrors of human life and one of the difficulties, especially in the modern world, that we have relative to meaning is, is that we live in a time where there is very little agreement on what life means. And yet, um, and most people, I think, if there was a knob between 1 and 11, where you could turn it up for more, your life meaning more, or down for your life meaning less, that people would say they would turn the knob up, but they would actually turn the knob down. Because if your life doesn't mean much, you can do whatever you want. And most people, I think, would rather have that. And we show that we would rather have that by what we do. But this passage makes it even worse, right? It's one thing to recognize the premise of this passage, that we human beings are masters at avoiding the moral and spiritual responsibility that is part of being human. But it's worse than that. Because in this passage— the thing that's special about chapter 33 in Ezekiel is this is the moment Jerusalem falls. They've been waiting for this all through these 33 chapters. God has been saying, Jerusalem's going to fall. Jerusalem's going to fall. I'm going to bring judgment. You need to repent. I'm showing you that I am the Lord. You have to repent. You need to turn around. Like, this is the chapter where it literally falls. And so what this means is, is that the people in this chapter, especially the people who are in Jerusalem, are literally at the very last moment. They're at the moment of their own deaths. Uh, they're at this moment where because I don't know if you know this about ancient warfare, but in most of the ancient world, up until literally, in some ways, the 18th, 19th and 20th century, the fundamental rule of sieges was this. 
If I attacked your city and you opened the gates and surrendered, it was immoral for me to kill anybody. But if you made me fight the siege to beat your city, if it took me two years to get in there, and it cost me 40,000 troops to get inside, when I breached the wall, it is not like mo- the mo- this modern moment, right? Like, like, like since the 1940s or whatever, where like, if you, were, if you drop your gun and you raise your hands, you're a prisoner of war and can't be shot. Nope. You just killed 20 of my friends on the way up this hill. I'm going to shoot you dead. That's the way it worked. And in some ways, is that more just? Is that less just? I'm not going to go into a discourse on military ethics right now, but for most of the history of the world, it was believed that if you made me fight my way into your city, I was going to ex- exact the cost that you made it cost me to take over your city. So what that means is, is because Jerusalem had, with, had withstood the Babylonian siege for two years and made it cost the Babylonian army in money, time, food, lives, disease, being away from their families, they knew they couldn't hold the siege much longer. And when the city finally broke, they had hell to pay. They had blood and death and gore and loss and death. And so in this passage, when they say, my, our sins are way down on us, how can we possibly live? The, that's literal. It's just a matter of time before those gates are breached. It's just a matter of time before that army comes in and kills us all. And, now, think about this. And in that moment of ruin, they still were not willing to take responsibility for what they Think about that. Because that's not what we believe. Most people believe that when people hit rock bottom, so to speak, they'll turn around. That's not true. It's not true. Because rock bottom is actually death and damnation, not feeling like you hit rock bottom. And at that point, you can't turn around. If you look at, if you read through, I hope you'll read through the whole chapter 33 because I'm not going to preach five sermons on it. And you look at what it says, each section basically is looking at some human group and saying, you have to take responsibility. So the first one that I'm not going to preach on is on Ezekiel being the watchman. He's like, listen, you can't make them listen, but you can fulfill your responsibility, which is to tell them what's coming. And if you tell them what's coming, you have fulfilled your responsibility, and I will not hold you guilty. I will hold you innocent, no matter what happens to them. But if you don't tell them, then they will die for their own sin, but I will hold you responsible for their blood because you did not fulfill your responsibility. Right? And then it's the people in Israel under siege. They're about to die, but listen, if you're about to die in your sins, you still have one remaining responsibility to confess them. You can still do that. You are still responsible to do that. It is still the right thing to do to do it, and you you must do it. Right? They had a responsibility, and they still— would not do it. And then the people in exile, right? They had a responsibility to prepare to return, to repent and believe and be changed in godliness so that God could form a people for himself that he had always been calling them to be so that he could send them home and bless them. And he's like, you guys have been in exile for years at this point and you still have not done it. The whole chapter is about that evasion. And yet the whole time you can see that God's demand for us to take responsibility. That's essentially what repentance and faith is, right? Human beings can do very little else towards their own salvation, but determining the course of their own will to say, I was wrong, and this is right, 
and I consent to moving in that direction, and I need everything from God to do it, but I consent to this. That's it. That's all you can do. But you are responsible to do it. And I want you to note that when God tells us about it, he doesn't say, you need to out-earn the bad stuff you did. It's like a scale, you know, and like, I'm going to put your good deeds over here, and your bad deeds over here, and your good deeds better outweigh your bad deeds. It's not what he says at all. He says literally the opposite. He said, if you have a mountain of good deeds, but then you as a person turn from that faith. You turn from pursuing the path of life. You turn from trusting me, and you decide to trust in yourself and to pursue dishonest gain. None of that good you did matters. It's all gone. I don't count for any of it towards your redemption. You're lost. He said, but if you have a mountain of wickedness, but you as a person take responsibility and that you confess what you've done, you you reckon with its moral seriousness. And in the text, it literally says you also give back the pledges and make what restitution you can. And you turn to me. I will not remember, or that is count against you, all of the wickedness of your past. That is, salvation, listen to me, this is so important. And this does make Christianity fundamentally different from any other religious path or philosophy in the world. Salvation is in the eternal present. It is now. Do you believe now? No matter what has happened up until this point, God is willing to forget all of your faith and righteousness. <laughs> Which, that's not very comforting. But because God is so consistent, it means that he means it when he also says, I'm willing to forget all of your wickedness. If right now you will turn and follow me in the way of life, you will surely live. So you might say something like this. I know that this is like, you well know, right? That God calls for real repentance and faith. So he's always doing. Every moment, all the time, for all of us. All of life, Luther said, was repentance. But since that's in religious terms, and you won't listen if I speak in just religious language because that's just, things just blink out of our minds. You could say the same thing similar to this. God will never let you avoid the responsibility that will redeem and make you. See, you see, in the scripture, there's only one condition on salvation. There's only one condition that God makes for us to be redeemed, to be made, to be formed, to be sanctified, to be made like him. And it's simply that we have to reckon with who we are. We have to be honest with God. We have to confess what really has been, and in so doing, recognizing our need for him to do something for us, which is to pay for our sins and to give us the power and the ability to follow him in his spirit, and for him to give us direction as he's spoken and shown himself, and for us to lay ourselves in a providence that he as our Father is working out that we can't see, that we have to trust in as we live inside of it. Does that make sense? And, we, and he will never, ever, 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 ever let us ultimately avoid that responsibility. I want to go quickly over four evasions in this passage. Four ways we, as evasion expert human beings, evade taking responsibility in God, right? And, and this, it's important for two main reasons. Three, three technically, but one is we're humans. What's true about the Israelites is true about us. These, this is the creeping nature of indwelling sin that we have to exert ourselves in faith against and put to death. But secondly, also, in, in another way, we're all watchmen. There are all people in our lives for whom God has spoken and shown himself to us, and there is warning that God has given us to give them in his standing revelation and that we're called to offer to them, right? 
And so we need to understand how humans work for both the purpose of our own salvation and growth and life, and also for the way we must love our neighbors and even our enemies, right? So the first is the evasion of despair and gloom. So in these verses, you see there's this section where they, they say, the Son of Man, the house of Israel says, so when it says the house of Israel, he's referring to the Jews in Jerusalem in the siege at, at Jerusalem. Does that make sense? When he says your countrymen or your people, he's referring to the people in exile in Babylon, two different groups of Jews in very different religious situations. So he says this, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and our sin weighs us down, and we're wasting away because of them. How can we live? You see the despair? It's not our sins have destroyed us. We need to repent. <laughs> see, they, they see they, they, there's a certain recognition. The way we have lived has gotten us here. And now the Babylonians are finally going to break this wall down, and they're going to kill us, and we're all going to die. What's the use? You see, what they're focused on is, how are we going to save our skin? Like, it sounds pious, but it's not pious. And you see, this is part of the problem with despair and gloom, is that it, it feels like we're being honest, but we're not being fully honest because we're not yet really taking any moral responsibility for our humanity. We're saying, oh, poor me. We're treating ourselves like we treat a dog that broke its leg. Oh, you poor thing. You, you don't think, like, when, when a dog is hit by a car and you're trying to help it, you're not thinking— Oh, he shouldn't have done that. It was immoral to run out into the street. <laughs> he should have learned the traffic rules. You just think this poor, dumb animal, like, how could he not know this was going to happen? How can I help it? And there, but there's a certain amount of moral self-indulgence by which we want to treat ourselves like a dumb animal, rather than as somebody who is ourselves complicit in our own ruin and destruction, in many cases. And then to, like, say, I did this to myself. What, ha what tends to happen is we hit rock bottom, and when we hit rock bottom, we don't say, either I die or I get honest. That's the remnant that does that. It's very few. The rest get there and they say, I'm dead, I'm ruined, there's no use in trying. Right. But you see, what, what that misses is that, is two things. The first is, it misses the truth. If I have created a life of ruin for myself, if I've done things that have led to the path of destruction, if I've gone from idolatry to sin to injustice to violence, and I've, I've gotten to the place where people don't trust me or my life is going really badly, how I feel or what's happening to me is not the totality of my existence. God deserves, even if I'm on my deathbed, even if I'm dying from the cost of my own sin, God deserves for me to say to him, I was wrong. Even if I don't get better, nobody respects me, nobody even knows I said it. That's why deathbed conversions can happen. They rarely do, because we're so hardened by that point. But they can't. If God gives you the grace, any sinner, any wicked person at that last moment, at that moment, they will, in his words, turn from their wickedness and turn to him. They will surely live. That is, he will save them. They will be redeemed. He will pour out his gracious love for them. Jesus died for their sins too. And you're like, well, that's not fair. Well, we'll get to that in the third point. Right? But you see, that's what he's saying. And so you, we can't give ourselves— to the indulgence of gloom. It feels like despair overtakes us 
But despair is a false harbinger. It, 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 it heralds things that are not true. Because God says, no matter how much despair seeks to overtake you, no matter how much gloom seeks to wipe away the horizon of possibility, God promises two possibilities, both of which will not help the person who only cares about their skin. Remember what Satan says in Job, about Job saving himself? He says, skin for skin, let me touch the man himself. Anybody, any human being will do anything to save their own skin. You see? And Satan is speaking the truth, sadly, there. That that's how the vast majority of humans on planet Earth will behave. They will do whatever it takes to save their own skin. But you see, at this moment of absolute ruin, there's no way to save your skin. And God doesn't actually promise that you'll save your skin. He promises two things. One is, he's willing to save you. That is spiritually and then ultimately in the resurrection, redeem your life. Even if all the consequences come crashing down and you lose your health and your life and your reputation and everything, he will be pleased in you through the atonement of Jesus the Christ, and he will give you his spirit freely. He will regenerate your soul, and he will save you eternally. That is the gracious offer of God to all people, no matter what state they're in, right? And secondly, without telling you how, he will contrive for your good if you choose the path of life in whatever life you have left. He won't tell you how, he won't tell you what he will make of it. He won't tell you how he will turn your life on the path of death to the path of life. But he will do it in a way you probably won't understand because if you've lived in the course of wickedness, you don't have wisdom. And the way God normally brings about goods in our lives is through the workings of wisdom that you don't understand if you don't have wisdom. And so in the place of wickedness where God says, you have to repent, you're in ruin, and you're like, well, how are you going to make my life any better? And the answer is, you can't understand it yet. Because Proverbs says like five times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And only when you actually come to fear the Lord can you learn wisdom and actually see how God uses the path of life and the work of the Spirit to bring you to a place of life even when you believe there's no way out of your ruin. Don't give yourself to despair. God is holding out his hands, right? The second is the evasion of spiritual Rage, a spiteful rage. Um, God says here, and he, he doesn't say that the Israelites say it. He just, he anticipates the objection. In verse 11, he says, say to them, these people in despair, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? You see, um, we would all like to believe that when people face ruin, death, like everything, that there's, they see no way or path back to the life they wanted. That they'll, that they'll cry and they'll repent and they'll be like the prodigal son and they'll, they'll run back home to the father and be embraced and be accepted back into the loving family of God's love. That's not what normally happens. What normally happens is, is that the person who is dying in ruin turns to the person who stood for good in their life and who had warned them and who had encouraged them and who had called them to something better and who had tried to love them and reason with them. They turn to them and they say, this must make you really happy to see me this way. Spite. 
And it's so comforting. It feels so good when you're in the throes of pain. One of the sinful anesthetics that you can create for yourself is rage. And the, the tastiest rage is spite, because you don't really want to be angry at yourself. You want to be angry at them, those people that are surely judging you. They're just probably so glad you're dying, right? There's this, um, there's this film that Johnny Depp was in some years ago called The Libertine, which I'm not recommending, just to be clear, um, in which he plays, I think it's, it's John Winton, who was like this extremely profligate, very atheistic, womanizing, drunk for— at the, at the point of the scene I'm talking about, he, he had been drunk for five years straight, and was dying of syphilis and liver failure. And um, there's this scene where he's sitting in this chair, and there's no more bottles of wine in the cellar, and his wife— takes the last one from him. And the scene starts with him sitting in his chair before she comes in the room. And he like urinates on himself in very clearly syphilis-induced pain. So he can't control his bowels because of his advanced drunkenness, but he, it also hurts to urinate because of his advanced syphilis. And so he's like being torn apart in his own body, and he starts weeping as he sits in this chair, like doubled over on himself. But he can hear his wife walking toward the room. And so he like, he makes this, he, and he like screws himself up and he's like, and she walks in and he's like, why can't you take care of your household duties? Like getting more wine for the basement, right? And so she, she comes over to him and she's like, do you, do you realize what's happening to you, right? And, and he says to her, this is such a terrible quote. He says, I think you will never be a contented woman until you are a much respected widow. And I am hard at work at doing that last good service right? It's your fault. You're the self-righteous one. You're the one who wants to be a widow. You, like, so I'll kill myself for you, because that's what you want. Aren't you happy? Right? It's just, it, it's, if you want to see the scene, just put the libertine into YouTube, and it's the third thing. There is a derogatory word about women shouted in that scene, which is why I'm not showing it to you. Um, it's a very intense and beautiful scene. But what she, when he says that to her, she says, I don't want you to die. I want you to live, but live differently. Right? And over this exchange, she pleads with him. She holds him. She pulls the wine away from him and hits him so she, he'll let go of it. And it, like, it's this, like, horrifying picture of, like, how God would plead with us, even in our own spitefulness towards him. Right? And if you, if you don't think that's what people do at the last measure, I mean, think about what you do in a basic argument. You're wrong and you're bad. That's why I get to be right. Like, we're, we're spiteful in all the little ways. Why don't you think when we've confirmed it for years and brought ourselves to ruin, that at that point we're going to not be spiteful? The idea that some future circumstance will dispose you differently towards God, and at that point you will be very open-hearted and repentant towards Him, is just nonsense. Even on our deathbeds, even in our ruin, even when we're about to die, we tend to be less repentant rather than more. But God, listen to how God says this, right? He doesn't just say, listen, I'm still willing to accept you. He says, look, there's four things in this verse. He says, first, as surely as I live. Think about that for a second, as a, as a preface. He's swearing on his own existence. If this isn't true, I don't exist. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord. Puts his own name on it. 
I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. I take no— I don't, You think this makes me happy? This doesn't make me happy. It's never making me happy. The death of the wicked has never made me happy. I've never, ever been pleased at the ruin of anyone. Even those I directly ruin in judgment, I don't take any pleasure in that. Right? And he says, but I would rather—that is this. I do rather take pleasure in the fact that they might turn and live. He's like, would I take pleasure in— You know what I take pleasure in, in the wicked? I take pleasure in the idea that they could turn and live. And then he pleads with them. God himself, the one of ultimate majesty and, and the willingness to, like, why would he have to plead for anything? But these people at this state, he pleads with them. He says, you guys, turn. That's why it's repeated. Turn from your evil ways. Like, it's an emotional plea. Turn, you guys. Turn from your ways. Why will you die? Like, like, I'm appealing to you on the basest possible human level, right? Like, just, just for the sake of wanting to save your own life, right? I mean, think of the indignity that God will place himself in to call forth us in the, mo- in the place of our absolute ruin when we can, when he could have gloated over us and chose not to. Earlier in this book, where damnation is still years off, he does glow over them so as a device to turn them through the pain of sarcasm. But at the moment when they're about to die, he's not sarcastic. He does not gloat over them. He does not try to turn them with a, a cutting humor in their own ridiculousness. At this moment, he holds his hands out and pleads with them to save their own lives because he can do everything but them take responsibility for themselves as human beings in repentance. All right, the third thing is the evasion of moral fault-finding. So now Ezekiel turns and God's eyes turn to the, to the Israelites in exile in Babylon. And he says about he's, what he just said about these people. He says, listen, even now, even a, two years into the siege, even at this moment, if the people who are about to get their throats slit turn to me, I'll save them. Not only will I save them, but he's telling the, the Jews in exile, they don't know this, but I will actually save their lives too. Many of their lives will be saved, and I'll redeem them into beautiful things. And, and, the, and the exiles in Babylon are like, what are you talking? Are you crazy? We've been rotting in Babylon for a decade now. Like, we got punished. We're in exile. We don't live in Israel. Like, how could you do this? That's completely unfair. Right? And God's response to them is, are you sure? Right? First of all, um, you are in no moral place to judge me, God says. Like, you're not even attempting in the weakest possible sense to be just. Do you think your opinion on what just is matters? And then he reiterates his standard of justice, how he work it. I will save the one who has faith and turns to righteousness, and I will not save the one who turns to wickedness. It couldn't be clearer than that. And behind this is the idea that he does this by means of atonement, that he will pay for the sins of those who have sinned, right? But then he says this, O house of Israel, you say the, word, the way of the Lord is just, but I will judge you, each of you, according to his own ways. Now think about this for a second. Um, the, do you see the word each there? You see, you had, you had a bunch of Jews who were in exile. They were under a, like, national, situational judgment. The Jews in Jerusalem were under a different one. Very different cultures, very different times, very different places, very different things going on. But here's what we know. 
though God judges nations and even whole bodies of believers, when it comes down to final judgment, he judges each person. Whatever happens at High Point Church, whatever happens in America, to the American church, whatever happens in Laos and um, Ethiopia in the church, and however we're related to any of that, in the end, God is just, in, at least in this, whatever you think he's doing providentially in the world, you will be judged as you. And you'll be evaluated in repentance and faith relative to salvation based on how you responded in the context you were in. And it's not whether or not you're rich or poor, not whether or not you're healthy or not, and it it will be whether or not you took responsibility as a human being to be honest to God, to receive his atonement, and to live as best as you could as a disciple and as an image bearer and as a watchman wherever he placed you. In a siege in Jerusalem, in exile in Babylon, 2022 in Madison, wherever you might move from here when you leave, he will judge each of us, and he will judge us according to our ways. Now, I don't think that literally means according to our own internal sense of morality, which we never live up to, and that we'll be damned on our own basis if we are damned. I don't, I don't know if that's what that means. It might mean that. But what it means is, is that he's going to look at our actual lives. Now, think about this. It at least means this. He's not going to judge you based on your good intentions. He's not. If your faith is so mystical and so, uh, so internal— that you don't actually—it doesn't lead you out of love and heart to walk in the way of life, and it cannot be discerned through your ways. It's not there. We haven't been honest with God. You haven't taken responsibility and repentance and faith to be honest to God. You haven't in the words here where he says, if the wicked person repents and makes—gives back what he stole and makes restitution and try to do the good in real life, faith always is fertile. It produces. It does something. And that's what Jesus could say in Matthew 7. Many of you will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all this stuff? And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. They, many people, Jesus is saying, believe they have faith and they do not. Everyone who has actual regenerative faith, God will not lose. But God never says that the mere statement that we have faith, or the pleading verbally that we have faith, or the self-indulgence inside ourselves that we claim to have faith, is faith. And yet everywhere in Scripture, in so many places, he claims that there could be profound self-deception. I'm going over just four in this one chapter. But the Bible is filled with dozens and dozens and dozens of mechanisms of human self-deception so that we never have to face taking responsibility before God in real repentance and faith, and for that to change us. Because he says—he <coughs> says, well, I'll say in just a second. The last thing is the evasion of false hearing. When I was in Florida, um, there was this woman that led worship with my preaching who had gone to Belmont for college. She was trying to break into the country music scene. But even people who sing on, like, like demo tracks in Nashville had— a, a, incredible voices. And so she didn't quite make it there, but man, she was, she was killer for the panhandle. And I remember hearing people in my church say, you know, I could stay there and listen to, insert her name, all day long. And I was like, that is a enormous tragedy. Like, like somehow you are in the, just the dynamic of like listening to the pleasing nature of her singing, missing out on the, ma- on the majesty and magnificence of God. Like we come here to worship to, to revel in, yes, through an artistic and poetic expression, the 
the promises of God, the beauty of God, the things we forgot all week, the things that because of all of our brokenness and our psychological difficulties, we have such a hard time believing for ourselves in our hearts really and actually living out. So we come to worship because we want to honor God and we want to believe his promises. We want to be made happy in the truth and we want to be changed by it. And what a paltry thing it would be to be like, look at her, she's hot and she sings good. I mean, can you imagine? But that's so normal. I mean, I'm going to be real honest with you. And I have, listen, I'm talking about Nicole. Nicole and I have talked about this many times, right? One of the things we've talked about is, I was like, you're a really good singer. <laughs> and it's, it'd be very easy for people to pay attention to you singing than worshiping God. It's one of the reasons why she doesn't lead as much. Like, there's all kinds of different worship leaders, right? And I'm like, we need to find worship leaders that have, like, girl-next-door voices, not, like, professional singer voices. And, like, I mean, if you can sing on key, I don't care about your voice quality, frankly. Because the point is, is to lead the people of God in worship. Does that make sense? Because what you, here's what he says. He's like, listen, did, did you notice the very last line of this passage? If you've been reading Ezekiel with us, you would have picked up on it. Probably, right? Maybe not. In almost every passage where God acts, at the end of the passage in Ezekiel, he says, and when this happens, the people will know what? What? That I am the Lord. Like, I, when I do this, they will know that I am the Lord. What does it say in this passage? He says, when all this happens, and it surely will, they will know what? It says that a prophet has been among them. Why does he say that? Right? And the answer is because he had just said, here's what they think you are. They think you're a hot singer who plays the piano super well who, like, makes them all pleased with the lusty love songs that she sings. They listen to you, and they think that they're watching, like, an MTV, like, music awards thing with people gyrating on stage and pleasing their visceral nature, and, like, they're listening in this utterly fleshly way. When you—what you are performing is the Word of God. You're telling them the truth so that they could see it, perceive it, and believe it, so they could—they could move away from all of these evasions. And one of the evasions—listen, you guys, these— especially these second two evasions, though all four of them, are directed at religious people, not irreligious people. Religious people. All four of these are fundamental to the experience of religious people in how we who profess faith evade God. We fall into despair and say, well, my marriage is too far gone. Well, my relationship with that friend is too far gone. Why should I confront her, even if it might be helpful to her? Why should I try to have a great Christian witness at work because they're not going to listen to me? Why should I— why should I? Why should I? Why should I? Why, why, why can't I just be in despair? Or, this city hates me. They hate us. Who cares about them? Like, let's have a good church and stuff and like have potlucks with like great barbecue. Like, who, I mean, these people are just trying to undermine everything we do. They're trying to like lie to our kids and they want to do this thing and they're going to like shut down that and they're going to do that and they're going to blah, 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 blah. Right? And, then, and whenever anything bad happens to us, they're glad about it. I mean, listen to how people feel about somebody who, like, doesn't think masks are very helpful, and then they get COVID. Like, well, maybe they should die or pay for their own medical care. You've heard that kind of crap? Like, that's crazy stuff. Like, that's literally—and then how do people respond to that? With spite. Listen, y'all. Spite is not—is not, not going to get us to love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> or love your enemy and be good to them. And if they're starving, give them bread. Or that if you give a cup of cold water to your enemy or your neighbor, not even to a believer, Jesus will never 
draw back from giving you your reward for serving him and loving him in that way. Jesus died for his enemies. He died for religious hypocrites. He died for the pagan Romans. He died for cannibals in far lands who were yet to hear about him. He died for everyone, awash in injustice and hatred. He poured out his life for them. And listen, spite is in us, right? But the second two, moral fault finding with God. I mean, think about this. I mean, yes, pagans do this too. Every, I mean, if, if I talk to somebody who's a university student who doesn't believe in God, they'll do this too. They'll find something in Christianity. They'll say, well, if God believes that, then he's bad. Therefore, a just God does not exist. Therefore, I am not accountable to him. Therefore, I don't have to believe it. I can do what I want. Okay, listen. Yeah. But I have also seen Christians who said, God wasn't there for me. So I don't, I'm not going to follow him in this. Right? God hasn't provided that husband I wanted to, so I don't have to live in celibacy, right? God, God didn't let me get the kind of promotion I deserve, so I'm not going to change my budget so I can give sacrificially to the work of God. God hasn't, so I won't. God hasn't, so I won't. God hasn't, so I won't. And you're Christian, you believe, and you're religious, and you— But, and the same is true for false hearing. Like we, I mean, who is more false hearing than the Church of God in, in, in America? Right? And, and maybe we have a lot of false speaking. Maybe, maybe if, maybe the day will come where you, where you won't, even if you're false hearing here today, you won't know that a prophet has been among you because I'm not one. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I'm the problem. But maybe we're the problem. Maybe like I stand here with you and I read the words of God and I don't, and I false listen. I go, oh, that's good. Oh, I can preach that. Oh, that's good. But I don't, I don't feel it and know it for me. Does that make sense? There's this passage in the book of Romans <clears throat> that partly gets at the problem here because if you look at the very end of this passage, the reason God says that neither his people in Jerusalem nor his people in Babylon will really turn to him, it's because in their hearts they really just want dishonest gain. <laughs> they're, they're greedy. They want to control their own lives. They want to do what they want. They want to have access <clears throat> to doing what they think is necessary to get the things that they want which leads to idolatry, which leads to sin, which leads to injustice, which leads to violence. In every chapter, in every passage, over and over again, so that we would get the picture, right? There's a, there's a passage in, um, in Romans that <clears throat> is very parallel to this, where the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah, speaking of a very similar time in Israel's history. He says this. He says, I was found by those who didn't seek me, I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. See what he's saying? There's some people who are not struggling with God and what he says, and, and, they, and the word of God comes into their life, and they haven't built up these, these lying capacities to evade God yet. And, and the word comes striking through, and it's new to them, and they go, oh my gosh. And they believe it. <clears throat> it's like, um, like Overland Mission. Like they'll drive into a new, a new like, just like little village in Africa, and they'll be like, hey, we've got news. And they're like, Jesus. And then they tell the story about Jesus, and they're like, oh my gosh. And they just believe it. And you're like, what well, the heck just happened? And the answer is, they haven't built up a religious resistance to it. Or a secular one. And they can hear the truth, and they can recognize the voice, and they can believe it. The problem is, is that we've, we've received, like, all kinds of weird emotional vaccines to the real gospel that we've given ourselves, and they're not FDA-approved. <laughs> Whatever you think about that. And, and they, 
they create all kinds of false immunities, and we end up being immune to the truth. It's like an autoimmune disease. Like our, like our little vaccines are eating us alive. And it's killing us. We can't hear the truth. And Isaiah says, God says, all day long, you guys, all day long, I've, I've held out my hands like this. And in indignity is God. He said, I've held out my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. I'll just stand here. Just hold out my hands. Like, if you want to, just hold out your hands. See how long it takes before they hurt. Just hold out your hands to somebody waiting for them. And it'll go on forever. Forever. She's saying, just come. Just, just, just come. Just come. I'm begging you to save yourself. Take responsibility for what's really happened. Tell the truth to everybody who deserves it in your life. And first and foremost, God himself. Do it. Believe. Believe that when he says, I will not count their sins against them, that he saw forward into the future of the death and resurrection of his Christ, who would die for the sins of all people, so that he would have a moral basis on which to be entirely just and forgive the wicked if they would turn to him, so that he could do the just thing, which is to save those who want to be saved, while taking every sin that's ever happened seriously. So that neither the people in Babylon can complain, nor the people in Jerusalem die in despair but that all could be saved and that he could be just, as it says in Romans 3, so that he might be just and justify all who would have faith in Jesus the Christ. You can believe right now. If you're already a believer, if you claim to already be a believer, I'd encourage you to go through the prostrateness of heart to believe again right now. And let whatever these four deceptions are, whatever, however they've built up, let him cleanse you of that autoimmune vaccination that's killing you that's crushing your faith, that's twisting you on the inside, so that you can be free to walk in the true life of the Spirit. And if you haven't believed yet, even now you can believe. Right now you can believe. Just, you just tell Jesus. As we sing the song, next song, you guys can come up. As we sing, just you give yourself to Jesus. Just say, take responsibility. Be honest with God. Say, I was wrong. I repent. I, I turned from all this stuff, and I want to turn towards the way of life in Jesus, and I recognize that that can happen because Jesus died in my place. And I trust that. Please give me the Spirit. Forgive my sins. Take me as your own. I belong to you. And God says that when that happens, he gives the gift of salvation, of redemption, of forgiveness. He reconciles you to himself and the truth and yourself and your neighbor and even, at some points, your enemies. Let's pray. God, <clears throat> man, you, Lord, you put so much in this chapter and— that sermon stunk. But I pray that even now, by your Spirit, you would be awakening in us a regenerate conscience, the willing to believe. And I pray that it would, it would, it would reap freedom from the constraining chains of our desire for the dishonest gain of sin. And that we would be able to stand up and sing out and walk out in the freedom of being, of having one love, one God, one king, and to know that king is good and merciful and just and loving and contriving for all of our goods. Help us to believe that in Jesus' name.